I had a interesting thought that I thought of uh, on this past Shabbos. I wanted to share with everyone. I think that uh, in the story that we read on Shabbos, the Parshas Vayeshev, I think we find like a tool to living a moral life. And Lord knows that's something that our society and our culture probably needs some help with. And also, I think it's an approach to avoid making mistakes of any kind. What I discovered or what hit me on Shabbos was the fact that you find multiple instances of a very unique theme in last week's parsha. I forgot to share it with you. We found, of course, there's a very dramatic story in the parsha last week, uh, primarily revolving around Joseph and the saga of him and his brothers. They want to kill him. Ultimately, they settle to throw him in a pit full of scorpions. And finally, out of the goodness of their heart, they sell him as a slave. Right, not exactly what you would describe as uh, brotherly love. Uh, but regardless, of course, Joseph, he ends up in Egypt and he has a bunch of episodes that happen to him there and he ends up the parish and he's in prison. He's in jail. Uh, and he's going to be there for two years and that's Netflix's parsha. And in the middle of the parsha, you have the episode of Judah and his daughter-in-law. Very strange episode. But as we know, genealogically, this story where Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, dresses up as a prostitute, seduces her father-in-law and dupes him and becomes pregnant with twins, we know that actually that story is the progenitor of King David and of Messiah, which is a really interesting episode on its own right. So that's the last part, very fascinating. But you find in the beginning of the parasha, someone who actually made a mistake and could have avoided this mistake with a certain method. And at the end of the parish, you find someone who indeed was on the precipice of making a very costly blunder, a very costly error, and he harnessed this tool to resist. So I want to compare and contrast the beginning of the parsha and the episode of Ruvain and then the parsha and the episode of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So the story begins, the parsha begins with Joseph is a young 17-year-old and he has images of grandeur, and he has dreams of grandeur and dominance. He has these two dreams that he naively tells his brothers about. One of them, he's bundling, everyone's bundling their own bundle of wheat. And in unison, the 11 bundles belonging to his brothers start bowing down to his bundle. And of course, he shares that with his brothers. He shares that with his brothers. And that wrinkles them, obviously. But then he tells him another another dream where he's there and there's 11 stars representing his 11 brothers and there's the sun and the moon representing his father and his mother and they're all bowing down to Joseph. And the brothers just get even angry at her and they can't stand him and they can't find anything positive to say about him and they really dislike him. And Jacob, of course, he berates Joseph. What are you talking about? Your mother's already dead. How could she bow down to you? But secretly, J- Jacob knows that something's going on up here. That's the big introduction of the Parsha. And the fateful day, Joseph is instructed by his father to go check up on his brothers. The brothers see him approaching, and they make a decision to kill him. This dreamer, he wants to destroy us. He wants to subject us. He wants to subs- make us subservient to him. We're done with him. We're fed up with him. We're going to kill him. And Reuven says, how can we kill our brother? Let's instead throw him into a pit. And we'll just let him be there. And indeed, that's what they did. They come. They strip him of his sweater. That was a very precious sweater because Jacob made it for him and was sort of the 
it was the linchpin of their enmity towards him. They strip him of a sweater, throw him in the pit, and they just sit around and wait. In the meantime, Ruven goes away, and they see a caravan, a passing caravan of uh, a traders, and they reel him up and sell him as a slave for 20 silver, silver coins. And that was the doing of Judah. Reuven comes back, he finds the pit is empty, and he is miserable. He's sad. They go to Jacob and they they slaughter an animal, they dip the sweater in the blood, they say, this is what we found, do you know who this is? Does it look kind of like Joseph's? And Jacob is apoplectic, he's beside himself, he's inconsolable, and that's where, so to speak, he's going to remain in a malaise and melancholy for the next 22 years until they get reunited. But what did Reuven do? So the Torah says that Reuven wanted to save Joseph. But he saved him incrementally. He said, let's first stop them from killing him and put him in a pit. And later on, I'll go, I'll go take him out of the pit. That was his plan. And that, of course, is a noble plan. It was noble intentions. The Torah, in fact, testifies on Reuven that Reuven wanted to save Joseph. He recognized that these brothers, they want to kill their own brother. What are they thinking? Let's stop them. But instead of doing it all at once, stopping and bringing it back to Jacob, he said, let's do it incrementally. Put him in the pit. He'll be fine in the pit. And then later on, I'll come collect him. That was Joe, that was Ruvain's plan. And he made a, he made a mistake because he should have just saved him. And the Talmud, it's really in the Midrash, in the book of Ruth, it brings down a criticism of Reuven. I want to read to you what it says. Ilu haya Reuven yodeya, shakarsh baruchu machtevelav, vayishma Reuven vayitzlemi yadam. Had Reuven known that God would inscribe this episode in the Torah for eternity, he would have acted differently. He would have put him on his shoulders he would give him a piggyback ride and carry him by force to his father. Ruvain wasn't thinking about how important this episode is going to be. He didn't think that in 2017 in Houston, Texas, we'd gather together and talk about it and dissect his action that he did 3,500 years ago. He didn't think about that. He was thinking, I'm trying to save him. Okay, what can we do to save him? Oh, let's just throw him in the pit and I'll save him later. He wasn't thinking about the eternal consequences of his actions. Had he known that this would be forever inscribed in the Torah for all eternity for us to nitpick his decisions, he would have put him on his shoulders and by force will him away from the mob and bring him back to his father. So I think what this actually shows is that, indeed, Reuven was righteous. He tried to save Joseph, but he made a mistake. What he should have done is actually save him completely. And avoid him being subject to the whims of the brother to sell him as a slave. That's what he should have done. And taken him by force, lift, protecting him, shield him by, with his own body, and bring him back to his father. That's what he should have done. Maybe Ruvain, his concern was this wouldn't work. Or the, the, the brothers, are, you know, they have too much, they see red in their eyes. You know, they're, they're too riled up. That's maybe what he thought. But you know what? Ruvain's the oldest. And he should have asserted himself. That's what the, the Talmud is saying. And, and had he known that this would forever be part of his legacy in the Torah forever, he would have carried him on his shoulder. That's what the Talmud says. 
Tara's saying his intentions was correct. He was trying to save them. It's just the way he went about it was a mistake and it caused everything that followed. Everything that followed resulted. But how would he have avoided that mistake had he thought about the eternal consequences of his actions? That's the beginning of the Torah, beginning of the Parsha. Let's fast forward to the end of the Parsha. Joseph is sold to Potiphar. Potiphar is one of the uh, he's one of the high officials of Pharaoh, and Joseph is excelling. Joseph is a very beautiful person, and he's uh, he's very efficient and he's very capable. And his new owner, Potiphar, he outsources everything to Joseph. Every Joseph controls everything. Joseph has all the keys. And everyone loves Joseph. Joseph, he has an appeal and a charm and a charisma that makes him very likable. And it makes him very likable even in the eyes of Potiphar's wife. And she tries to seduce him. And he steadfastly resists. Until one day, no one's home. And Potiphar's wife tries to force herself on Joseph. And she rips off his clothing. And Joseph flees, but now she's holding his clothing, and he doesn't have any of him. So she starts – she turns the table, and she starts screaming, whoa, whoa, this person's trying to rape me, and he pulled off his clothing. And she she just perverts the whole story, and Joseph is imprisoned. A lot of people don't remember the Bible studies of their childhood being so uh, salacious. So Joseph – was confronted with, again, an opportunity to make a mistake, to sin with his, with his boss's wife, after all, which would be, be an act of, uh, of evil, of immorality. And he managed to muster up the courage to say no. And the Talmud actually gives us an interesting backstory because the word that the Torah uses uh, for this encounter has an ambiguous uh, slant to it. It says it was a day of a, of a holiday probably a pagan holiday. And of course, Joseph is not going to participate with any of the pagan festivities. And his boss's wife, Potiphar's wife, she feigns an illness. So now they're isolated in the home. It's a huge home, a huge household. And it's only Joseph and Potiphar's wife there. And uh, however, what the Torah, the word that the Torah uses is that Joseph came home to do his work which could mean is that Joseph was just doing his work. He was overseeing the books or whatever. But it also could mean is that he was going to actually capitulate and sin with Potiphar's wife, who has been entreating him for so long. So the Talmud brings two opinions. Rav Vishmul, this is the Talmud in, uh, in the book of Sota on page 36b. It says, one opinion says is that Joseph was home alone doing his work, literally. He was working. The other opinion suggests is that, no, he was willing to capitulate finally. After so long of being prepositioned by Potiphar's wife, he was willing to give in, finally. And according to the opinion that says he was willing to give in, what happened? So if he was willing to give in, how did he suddenly resist at the end? The Talmud describes something very dramatic. But Shah, in that hour, at that time, Ba'asa diyukno shel aviv, the visage, the countenance, the image of his father was conjured before him. 
and it appeared to him in a window. And it started talking to him. He had a hologram of Jacob appeared to him in the window and it starts to talk to him. And it said to him, Yosef, Joseph, in the future, your brothers will be written on the stones of the ephod, the stones of the breastplate of the high priest. We're going to read in the book of Leviticus. Moshe tells the Jewish people, you got to build the breastplate, which is a square ornament that goes on the chest of the Kohen Gadol. It has 12 stones. Each one of the stones is inscribed with the names of one of the tribes of Israel, i.e. the brothers of Joseph. 12 stones, 12 tribes. So this visage is telling Joseph, in the future, your brothers are going to be inscribed and etched into the stones of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. The Atabeneim, and you're among them. However, that is imperiled by your behavior or by your behavior that you're about to embark upon. Do you want your name to be erased? From amongst them? You'll be called a, uh, a patron of prostitutes? Is that what you want? And that gave Joseph the, the ability and the courage to resist. That's the story. Joseph is about to capitulate to sin and the visage of his father appears and tells him, what does it tell him? It doesn't tell him don't sin. It tells him what's going to be in the future, hundreds of years down the line. The high priest of the Jewish, of the nation that's going to come from your family, it's going to have a monument to you and your brothers because you are the foundations of Israel, of, of our nation. However, the reason why you are the foundations of our nation is because you are righteous and holy and moral people. If you act upon what you're going to do right now, if you give in, you're going to lose your stature as one of those 12 people. And there will only be 11 stones. There will only be 11, so to speak, forbearers of the Jewish nation. There will only be 11 tribes. So what, what, does he, what does he encounter here? He encounters... Again, the eternal consequences of his behavior. This visage is telling him that if he goes ahead with this sin, he's going to have eternal consequences. The fact that the stone that was really supposed to be his is is going to be missing. It's not going to say Joseph on the on the, on the breastplate of the coin god, though. There's not going to be 12 tribes. Joseph will not be part of the Jewish nation. And that, because he's able to think long-term, that enables him to resist. Now, it's also interesting. What is this visage that he, that, that was conjured to him? So the sources tell us is that actually this wasn't just a random appearance of his father in the window. Actually, this was Joseph who was able to conjure this himself. The, the countenance of his father was emblazoned into his mind. And he would have a, he would use that as a tool to resist temptation. But it's interesting if you just look at, there's a lot of things it could have said to Joseph to try to get him to stop sinning. But what does it tell him? It tells him about something that's a breastplate that's going to appear in the Jewish story hundreds of years later. But that is, so to speak, a mark that's going to, a blemish that's going to be on Joseph's record forever. And that, when you think about eternal consequences of 
a temporary act and makes the temp- puts it in perspective. Joseph, he had a temptation to give in. And that would have been very wonderful, I'm sure, for a given amount of time, for a fixed amount of time, for a temporary time. And then Joseph says, well, how do you fight a temporary temptation by looking at the eternal consequences of a temporary temptation? And I think that this idea of looking at not just what the act, a given act, a given choice that someone has, not looking at it, what does it mean on an immediate scale, looking at what it means at a very long-term horizon, actually that gives someone the ability to make a more cogent and more reasonable, more moral, more rational decision and a more correct one. Had Ruvain known that his action would have eternal consequences, had he thought about that, he would have made the right choice. Joseph indeed recognized the eternal consequences of his action, and that gave him the courage and the fortitude to be able to make the courageous and righteous one. And I think there's Mishnahs that we're going to encounter in the book that we're studying, the chapters of the Fathers, the Eternal Ethics. And the first Mishnah in the second chapter, and the first Mishnah in the third chapter, both say the same idea. I'll read to them very, very quickly. I don't want to spoil them. But we'll read to them very quickly what these Mishnahs say. The first one says, look at three things and you'll never sin. What are the three things you have to look at and you'll never sin? Number one, know what's above you. A seeing eye, a hearing ear, and all your actions are written in a book. We believe that God keeps a tally of our behavior, both good and bad. And when there is this recognition of the eternal consequence, God is keeping track, and God is the, you know, the best bookkeeper in the world, and everything is done with precision. When you think about, again, the eternal consequences of behavior, you'll never sin. Because a sin, by definition, is favoring the ephemeral, favoring the temporary, favoring the body, favoring your experience in this world, which is, by definition, temporary and fixed and short, over, is favoring that over the eternal world, which is a really bad trade-off. Why would someone capitulate to something temporary if that has eternal consequences on the negative side? You're going to lose something eternal to gain something temporary. It doesn't make any sense. But the only reason why we can sin is because we don't think about the temporary consequences. And thus says the Mishnah, all you have to do to guarantee you'll never sin, to never make a blunder, never make a mistake, is to think about the fact that the actions have eternal consequences. If, if you recognize that, then it would be ludicrous for you to choose something temporary in lieu of something permanent. And that's one Mishnah. The third chapter begins with a very similar idea. Akavya ben Mahalalel. He says the same thing. Look at three things, you'll never sin. What are these three things? Know from where you came, Know to, to where you're going and know before whom you're going to give an accounting. You came from primordial biological matter of very little significance. You go into a place of worms and maggots. And you're going to give an accounting before God for all your behavior. Again, how do I avoid sinning now? Says the Kavya Ben says the Mishnah, don't think about now at all. Think about the past and think about the future, but not now. The past 
would give you, if you think about really what, what are you as a human, you're nothing, right? You could buy the materials needed to make a human body in a drugstore for $2, right? And that, again, shrinks the value, so to speak, of your life here as a body. And then we also augmenting your value of, of a soul. You're going to have an encounter with God. You have to give an accounting with God. By doing that, we're amplifying the value of the spiritual, eternal reality that's within you. And thus, by shrinking or minimizing the value of your body, so to speak, and augmenting the value of your soul, that puts the actions, the actions of the body, sin, the actions of the soul, mitzvah, into perspective, and you'll never sin. And I think sort of on a deeper level, the essence of all our struggles in life as a human with what we call the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, is a simple question. What time horizon are we using when calculating which choice to make? I always give this example. If Suppose you're late for work or you're just – you've spent a long day and you buy a red light and it's not one of those red lights that are perfectly attuned to match the amount of drivers. So you're, you're by a red light. There's a bunch of cars behind you, but there's nowhere going in the perpendicular way. And it, it's so inefficient, right? And I, you just want to go and there's no cameras, right? Or let's say there are cameras. But you look behind you, you see there's a cop right behind you, right behind you. So you have two choices. You can either run the red light. It's perfectly safe. You're not going to hurt yourself. It's safe. And you know what? And no one's crossing. You're not going to hurt anyone. There's no pedestrian. You're good. Like, why should you wait? But of course, there's long-term consequences. You, you'll probably get a ticket and you'll get your demerit points on your license and your insurance will go up and you have to fight the ticket in court, right? Again, but wait a minute. I could get home faster. No one, when we recognize and evaluate and weigh the benefits against the costs of running the red light – Suppose there's no cop. There's just a camera. Yes, you do benefit by, 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 by going through the traffic signal when it's still red. You benefit. You get home faster. You're able to unwind faster. You're able to catch up on the shows faster. You're able to see your kids. Whatever. You're hungry. You're, you'll have dinner faster. Yes, there is a benefit. But the benefit is very temporary. And the consequences is much more of a longer time horizon. You have to deal with it. It'll cost you a lot of money and, and, and it'll cost you points and headache. And, but that's the calculation we have to make. And if we see the camera behind us and we know for sure that there's eternal consequence, we'll never run the red light. If we don't see the red light, if we don't see the camera and we're not sure about the consequences, the eternal consequences or the longer time horizon consequences, maybe we will. Whenever there's a choice between a sin and a mitzvah, so to speak, invariably, the sin is more appealing in the short term. In your life as a body, in the 70, 80, 90, 100 years that you live here, a sin by definition is something that benefits you in this current orientation. Your current constitution as a body living in this world, a sin is usually, invariably, better off. And the mitzvah is something thinking about the soul. It's about the, you know, what happens to you in a much bigger scale than the short term. Essentially, it's the same question. You're going to run the red light or not. You're going to have the short-term benefit and losing out on the long term, or you're going to favor the eternal and 
going to suffer indeed a little bit. You gotta wait through the red light. It's, it's a schlep. You're, you're going to absorb a little bit of pain in the short term. And I think that if we think of this orientation, this calculation, this way of looking at things, that will enable us to, to make the correct choice. If we, if we recognize, we really recognize that the mitzvah is, is eternal, it becomes much more appealing. So I, I want to share one more point here, uh, just to, to wrap up. So the Talmud says like this, another, uh, another extension of our critical point, that if you look at eternal consequences, you're not going to make as many blunders. The Talmud says, what is a sure-fire way to never sin? To remember the day of death. So this is the flip side. Just like we look at the eternality of a mitzvah and how valuable it is for the soul and for the soul's realm, the soul doesn't die when we die. It's just the body that dies. When we look at the ephemerality or ephemerality Sorry, I mispronounced that. We look at the ephemerality of a sin and the ephemerality of our body that when we think about the fact that we're going to die and everyone dies, even even if they have all these new plans to make us live till 200, which is great. But even if you live to 200, you'll still die when you're 200 or 300 or 500. There's a shelf life, a definitive shelf life to life over here in this world as a body. A sin is favoring the body. When we recognize the day of death, we recognize the fact that everything here is short-term and every investment in this existence is bound to go to zero when we die. Well, that puts in into perspective and we're more capable of making clear-headed decisions. So again, beginning of the parasha, we see Ruvain, had he known that it, this would have existed forever in the Torah, he would have made the right decision. And Joseph, in the parasha, he too had he, the reason why he was able, he was empowered to make the right decision was because he looked at it from a very long-term horizon and was able to make the right choice. And I think for us as well, the more we, tr- we train ourselves to look at the cost-benefit analysis on a, on, a, on, a, on a very big scale, on a long-term horizon, the more likely we are to make the correct choices because that indeed is the essence of all choices, right? How long of a time horizon are we going to give to our decisions and our decision-making process.